Welcome to the Startup Grind podcast. Startup Grind is the world's largest independent startup community, inspiring, educating, and connecting millions of entrepreneurs across the globe in partnership with Google for Startups. These are the stories of disruptors, innovators, and game changers from the fastest high-growth companies and venture capital firms in existence. Join us as we unpack their strategies, learn from their mistakes, and grow together. There's no time to wait, so let's begin. Today's episode is brought to you by Twilio. Twilio is a cloud communications platform used by Uber, Airbnb, Booking.com, and many more. Twilio provides you building blocks to add messaging, voice, and video to your web and mobile applications, SMS, voice, WhatsApp, and now email with their acquisition of SendGrid. Twilio runs an amazing program for startups. Shout out to our friend, good friend, Brendan Yo. That includes $500 getting started credit and access to exclusive webinars made for startups and the full support of the Twilio Startups team. You can sign up now at twiliostartups.com slash startupgrind. Thank you, Twilio. Hey, you all. Chris Jonu. This is Startup Grind Global Podcast, and we have a truly special episode for you today, Alema Bowie. Alema Bowie is one of these stories you chase for years and um, just chase, chase, chase. Run after them, and if you're lucky... They pull a hamstring, and I can catch up, and uh, that to me, that's Lema Bowie. Um, she is such an incredible entrepreneur, a Nobel Prize winner. She stopped a, a civil war in Liberia and now has dedicated her life to making the world more peaceful, and I'm just proud. I'm proud to be able to share her story with you, and let me do the proper bio before I get all worked up. Um, Lema Bowie is the founder and president of the Bowie Peace Foundation with offices in Monrovia, Liberia, and New York. Lema is continuing the legacy of the Liberian women's peace movement through her foundation, which is shaping the next generation of peace builders and democratic leaders through education and leadership development. Create a more equitable and peaceful world by making a donation at bowiepeaceusa.org slash donate that's g-b-o-w double e peace usa.org slash donate and at the moment she has this emergency relief fund to help with COVID in um, Liberia so I, I know we're all stretched I know we're all you know um, dealing with what's going on in the world in our own ways but if you have the capability the ability rather to make a donation, please do. That's bowiepeaceusa.org slash donate with a G-B-O-W-E-E. Um, but if not, just enjoy the story and understand that um, we're lucky enough, we're fortunate enough to have people like Lema out there putting their life on the line, as she did, um, to change the world, make it a better place, take a stance, and um, hope you enjoy it. Love it. Cheers. Lema. Thank you for joining us. No problem, Chris. Look, I have to tell you, you know, I've interviewed a lot of people and um, this is the first one I've really been scared about. Oh. <laughs> it's just Why? the oh, just the, the the videos and everything you've done, it's um it's been uh, it's intimidating. And I just and I really want to don't, do it justice. Don't be don't be Let's just just let's just have a conversation. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, 
when when I'm talking with my guests, and I think it's a really good one to kind of paint paint a picture here. I usually start with the question, you know, around was there a mother or father that was an entrepreneur? Sorry, was there a mother or father that was an entrepreneur? Mother, Mo- mother, yeah. Can you kind mm-hmm. of tell me a little bit about growing up in, in Liberia and and, and um, your mother's impact on you? Okay, so I can't really talk about my mother without talking about my grandmother because that's how biased I am. That's the person I'm most in love with. Yeah, she's 113 and she's still alive. There you go. So, <laughs> oh yeah, please, of course. I want to yeah, so um, I'm number four of five girls, mm-hmm. um, and we kind of like my parents. My dad was much older than my mom, mm-hmm. so she had her first child as a teenager and brought that child home to my grandmother. Had the second child two years later, brought her home. Had the third child, brought her home, and then my grandmother was like, "You know what?" I'm giving you all room in my house because I want to see you having children. And so the first four of us really grew up with our grandmother. Even though our mother was around, but she was basically the primary caregiver of us. And my grandmother was an entrepreneur, so first. And she owns a rubber farm, several properties, she had several businesses, like petty traders selling for her. And then my mother picked on and started doing her own little thing. But by the time I was uh, a year old, my parents had built their own house just next to my grandmother's house. So there was not any moving away happening. They just had their home for my sister and I continue to sleep in our grandmother's bed. We kind of like grew up in a closely knitted neighborhood. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like a rich neighborhood. It was kind of like a slum, not even middle income, but the values of collective humanity was really where we picked it from. People say rich kids live live in bubble live in a bubble, but I say even us in poverty will live in a bubble because we never really grew up hearing anyone say they were hungry and didn't have a solution for it. We came from school, neighbors would feed you, bathe you. If there was death in one home, all of the children were transferred to another home. If you know, It was just like a real nice place. We celebrated both Christian and Muslim holidays. From a very early age, I knew my dad had no tolerance for domestic violence. Mm-hmm. So in the neighborhood, he was the one who was always fighting men if they lay hands on their wives. Um, school was very important to them because my mother is a high school dropout. My dad graduated high school slash technical school. So he was a technician, radio technician. Um, So for them, they wanted us to go to school. Our grandmother told us from very early ages that if your husband brought rice, you had to bring the charcoal. So it was really trying to push us to be independent. At early ages, we were taught how to save money 
and how to do petty businesses like selling candy and solar pop and all of those different things. We had a wonderful, really wonderful childhood. I look back and I wish my children had half of that childhood that I had. Yeah. So yeah, it sounds like a really like great community vibe going on. And I was gonna ask that about your grandmother, and um, you know, my grandmother was quite entrepreneurial too, and and her, you know, kind of pushing us out there to sell tomatoes. They had tomatoes, um, you know on the street and it sounds like uh, your grandma would do the same thing you couldn't be sitting around she would make you do stuff well she wanted us every year she would bring like a dollar and give to everyone in december she would come back and say so what did you do with it i was very slow my siblings would invest theirs i would be the pimp of the neighborhood the day i received that dollar i would be like all my girlfriends and my cousins will be walking behind me, will buy candy and everything. And then come December, I can't get a, another one. I'll be crying because I didn't invest. But it took a while for me to to, to get that. Yeah. Fantastic. And then and then you, you know you said something quite interesting about your dad, you know, standing up to um, you know the bullies and the and these these guys in the neighborhood too. So there was just a number of role models that that said. I guess very early on, like if something's not right here, I have to stand up to it. I, I, I can say to a lot of people, because you know, in, in the mainstream media, or even just media today, people, when they hear Africa girl or daughters, the first thing that comes to mind is how um, uh, underprivileged or suppressed or oppressed you were. And I tell people that that was not my experience as a child growing up in Africa, in Liberia. In my parents, both parents come from the part of our ethnic group where FGM is a key thing. And I remember vividly when those people came from the village to take us because our cousins had gone ahead to go and go through the process of FGM, which is in our culture, they call it Sandy. The secret society but FGM is a part of it. My dad went in and came out with a gun that right. he was going to kill everyone, that none of his daughters were going through that process, and that's how we were spared from it. Even growing up, my aunties and cousins who were older living in the house, when men would come to ask their hand in marriage, my dad had a common practice where he would spin them around and say, do you see any scar? Do you see any eye broken, hand broken, leg broken? No, if you get tired, bring her back. But if you ever put a hand on her, I'm coming after you. So beyond pushing us for education, fighting for us to have the best in life, really and truly our um, individual individuality was a key thing to them. We were not just daughters no one said i wish i had sons it was just because we're five girls my father my mother never had a son for my father and it was not a problem he was just happy that he had his daughters yeah i've got two girls myself i'm the same oh okay (laughs) and and then so you know there was obviously an importance on on education can you can you run through um you know what you studied you know how, how you learned and then um, oh, yeah. school School was competitive, unlike these days. Mm-hmm. Even when we were up, I remember my sister, who is 
um, about 18 months older than I am, almost two years. She was smart, but she was not as fast as I was. Yeah. So come, uncles will come in and put coins down and say, spell your name. And she would go J-O-S-E-P-H-I-N-E. And then they will say to me, spell your name. And I will go capital L-E-Y-N-A-H. And they will give me the money. And then she will say, but I spelled my name. And they said, no, you didn't put capital to that J. You remember those kinds of learning that was specific and detailed those are the kinds of, so we grew up in a home where someone would just come and put something down and say three times four or this time this. It was very important. But then also in that neighborhood, we had one woman who never had kids, never married, but was a teacher. And that was our worst nightmare. Every child, because as soon as she passed by her house, she would call you and say, come and sit and read. So whether you're going to buy stuff for your father or mother or whatever, if they didn't find you and came to her house and saw you there, you were in trouble because it meant you were misbehaving. That's why she called you to study. So education was very important. So in school, we did all the regular things. Our um, education system in Liberia is leaning more towards the American system. So... We studied a lot, even if we were colonized, we would say we were colonized by the Americans, a lot of American history, um, the Pledge of Allegiance, all of those things are similar to that of the U.S. So history, the only time we interacted with Liberian history was civics, the Liberian civics, but most of our history lessons was about the Mayflower and all of those different things. Religion and faith was very important to our growing up into our educational process. School, like I said earlier, was very important. My father had a practice. They used to give the end of the year report, December 17th, every year. And he would say on the 16th or 15th, if you fail, you will wear banana leaves for Christmas. And you know, buying new dresses for children for Christmas was a big thing. Right. So people dreaded it. But then also in that neighborhood we live, when you receive your report card, you have to go to every house to show it to the adults in the neighborhood, fail or pass. Right. If you fail, you got spanking from every other parent. Oh, if you pass, you got a coin from every other parent. That is how um, important education was to those poor people, because they felt like this was the only means of their children not living the way they lived. Absolutely. Just that, that, that want or need, I suppose, for the next generation to do better than them, right? Yeah. Um, and then, you know, I don't want to talk too much on, on, on the politics. I want to, you know, more around... Um, um, you know your entrepreneurial journey, I suppose, but you know I can't can't leave out everything that you've you've done. When did you kind of when did you kind of notice that there was a problem in your city, or you know when did violence start? Without getting you know, well, yeah. my older sister, who's late now, was more politically conscious. Mm-hmm. My dad worked with the government. After many years, things got better. He became, he worked with the National Security Agency. He became the government's liaison to the U.S. government. So 
Of course, he was making a lot of money, even though we stayed in that same neighborhood whilst him and my mother were building their dream house. And it was in those years that my sister started getting politically conscious because she had this boyfriend who was politically conscious. And so she would come home and talk about corruption and extrajudiciary killings. And every time she started to talk, my father would shut it down that not those things were all lies. And my mother was such a believer in Liberia and Liberians that for her, her socialization, her interaction was that we were decent, God-fearing people, period. No one could convince her that any Liberian had it in them to massacre a community of children or to do this or to shoot someone at point-blank range. My mother never believed those things. So as a child, those were my initial understanding. And then when I was 13, one morning they woke us up and said there had been a military coup and that we should wake up. And we woke up and we're just sitting in the house my dad had gone to work, and my mom was so worried. The next day, soldiers were moving from place to place. People from different ethnic groups were rejoicing that they had not come into power. By 2 p.m., people were being killed because the, the coup had turned over. My dad would come back home, and in a state of, he was in prison for a few hours, and had gotten so by that 13. That was my beginning of understanding, and I would soak in, sit and watch the news, and just have nightmares. But think about the fact I, I never really focused on the politics. For me, it was always, almost always, what happened to the family of those people that were killed? Right. Those were my, and I think it's because. Where from where I came as a child, everything was about the collective and yeah. never the individual. Yeah, yeah, it's obvious, you know, even what your story around going around with your grades and um, either either it was the walk of shame or you were collecting money. Um, and so it was just this curiosity, and then obviously just noticing what was happening in town. And then did it just start getting getting worse to the point that you? Um, needed to do something about it? How did it kind of progress from there? It, it was on and off. And then by the time I graduated high school, um, the war came unexpectedly. And then we had to move. And then we started seeing like a difference in the way people interacted. My best friend was from an ethnic group. That, but if you go back to when I started talking about my growing up years, no one ever questioned the ethnicity of people or where they came from. Yeah. It was always very, you know, like friendly. And then when they walk in, so what was turned upside down for me was not the killing, but the double standards that I was confronted with. That all of a sudden I was being told that I could not interact with that best friend of mine because she was from the evil ethnic group. Right. And then eventually seeing people being killed, that was when everything just turned upside down. And um, and then 
you know, was it was it a matter of you know fear being turned into rage? I mean, is it just enough's enough? And it started with um, disbelief, mm-hmm. shock. Then it transcended to fear. Then it went to anger, and then the anger, anger with intentions to pay back, and then eventually anger with intentions to transform. And I think that's where I am today. I'm still angry. I'm angry over a lot of things, but that anger I have come to recognize has become my fuel for transformation. Right. Absolutely. And... So did did um, just women in the neighborhood start getting together? I'm trying to pit, uh, piece together this bit where you start wearing white and start confronting. Um... Well, it, 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 that was later on. Mm-hmm. I went around with this anger for a while. And then one day, a group of us decided we needed to do something. But we were only seven. And we had 10 US dollars. But it came from me having a dream previously and starting an organization with women, Christian women, and then the Muslim women started their organization. We came together and then we decided let's do something to change the tide. And we were already looking into using our faith and then looking at peace. And peace was white. But then also in the Bible, when women were going out to intercede on behalf of their community, there were no makeups and no jewelry. So then the whites came with no makeup, no jewelry, no color, because we were in what we refer to, quote-unquote, sack clothes and ashes. So after we started that first $10, we used to write a statement and I think the reason why the statement gained traction was because we name ourselves. And then once we put that statement in the newspaper, people wanted to see who these women were that were defying the Taylor government and putting their name, even though this was a government that was very brutal. And one thing led to the other. We got in the streets, we started making plans, we protested, we were picketing, and they just took off. With no knowledge of where we were going, the one thing we knew from the get-go was that our intention was to bring an end to the war. Right. And this just drew people that, like, must have been people everywhere that um, that had felt the same way, right? But just didn't have the... We, we intentionally, when we started, seven, next time it was 20-something, next it was 65, it was 250, it was 2,500. And then we started going out to do more mobilization. But our focus at the time was just Monrovia and its environs. And then eventually people started coming from rural communities and seeing what was happening and going back and organizing themselves. But the beauty of those organizing was that they would never really step in the streets until we went and launched their program. So basically, if someone say in the next town, wanted to start a peace campaign, they would wait for me to go to march publicly with the women 
in that way, I have given them a blessing to continue their work. So whilst we started with one area, we ended up doing over 15 areas in nine counties. So before we could even get to peace talks, we had over 10,000 women all over the country protesting. Incredible. Can I, can I just go back a little bit? Because that first seven, right? And, and this would have come at a time when you could have, you know, been working or, you know, continued your education, whatever, but you chose to do this. And I imagine that um, it was life on the line for the first first group of you guys, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I have, I first had a job that was paying me a hundred bucks that I needed to feed my children. And I resigned that job to do that protesting. And once we started, I had gone to this international organization to raise funds and for the campaign the guy there said to me you are very brilliant you have a drive for doing stuff why don't you come and work with me as my program manager for justice and peace and i said no he said well and at that time four kids living as refugees in another country and several other family members to care for. I was, I had just resigned my $100 work. And this guy tells me, we'll pay you $1,500. Yep. And then we'll send you to the US. And I said to him, no. You know, so that was because I knew that that was not where I wanted to be. At that moment, where God wanted me to be was to work with those women. So. That was the sacrifice. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, easy to try and pinpoint these moments when you're looking back, but that was just a matter of right time, right place, I guess, the your need to get this all in motion. I don't, I don't know. Um, so you build momentum. You've got, you know, communities in, in, in different, different cities now also um, you know, waving the white flag, I suppose. And um, then there's this, this confrontation. How, how does that kind of, how does it escalate to the point where you're, you um, are now in front of the government, in front of the, is it, is it the prime minister or president? President. The so president. the essence of all of the protests was that we had been at war for 14 years. It, it wasn't getting any better. It had gotten so bad to the point now that kids were being taken and thrown into pickup trucks as they were going to school, giving one-hour lessons in shooting AK-47 and sent on the war front. Women were being raped. Children were pregnant. Women were... I mean, it was just a horrible time. And so we decided... And the government was saying at the time that they, there were three things that they would not do. Go to peace talks, um, take in an intervention force, and that so they would not sit with the rebels they would not allow an intervention force in that i think the last one i'll think about it but so those three yeah there would never be a ceasefire to fight till the last soldier die so those three things when we step out was those things that we were saying we will not sit down we'll continue to protest until these three demands were met and so we wanted to meet with the president to tell him that these were our demands. And it took almost a month for him to want to meet with us. 
when he eventually meet with, met with us, he decided, okay, that he would go to the peace talks. And so once he decided and the peace talks were going to be held in nearby Ghana, so we too mobilized a few women, including myself, and we flew to Ghana to, to protest repeatedly at the peace talks whilst mobilizing refugee women because there's a huge there was a huge community of Liberian refugees in Ghana and we were going to, we were mobilizing those women to join us in our protests whilst the protest in Monrovia was continuing. Incredible. And this and the video where you kind of confront him and there's a there's a woman standing in between, is that his wife? No, at the time that woman is the president of the Senate. Because she seemed she like she like you you were affecting her with your words, right? It was she got it. She did, but the one thing that he did not know at the time, and a lot of people didn't know, was that while she worked with him, while she advised him, she was our primary supporter, financial. Um, she was our primary donor of the movement. Wow. So every other day she sent us money because she would call and say, you can never stop doing this because the guy has lost his money. If we must save this country, you all have to continue doing this work. And that was just like under the table. Nobody, you didn't know that until later. No, she would send it. We had one emissary between her and us, I knew about it because some days she and I would speak on the phone. There was one night we went to do a prayer vigil and she came, but she didn't come with her security escort. She came in a very old taxi and she had this white cloth covering her. She sat with us for like two, three hours and then she went home. Incredible. Good people everywhere. Yeah. And, um, and then this was like the like the pivotal moment, you know, the with the peace talks. The pivotal moment was when we went to peace talks and we had been there endlessly. We thought this thing would be like one week, two weeks. It dragged on. It was into the third month, and the warlords didn't seem to want to even stop, you know. And so one day, we decided that we're going to hold everyone hostage. Um, in the hall, and we staged that kind of blockage. They said they were going to arrest me. I threatened to strip naked, and the mediator came, negotiated with us. But I think that moment was the defining moment in the peace talks because afterwards, people were basically very um, sober in the way they they, they, they they interacted with people or even engage the process. And about three weeks later, after that confrontation, it's a, a peace agreement was signed. Incredible. And I mean, to you, it sounds like, you know, you grew up in this community, you were very happy, and then probably the, the next generation just knew nothing but war. It was just a totally different norm norm to them and and that's what you were fighting for like just changing flipping it back to normal I suppose yeah 
Yeah. Well, I mean, in our culture or in our country at the time, the or in our culture, I take a step back. In our culture, we do not have insurance um, money. So most parents will tell you that they invest all they have in their children because their children are their insurance policy. <laughs> yep. So um, when we step out, it was basically trying to secure the future, not just of our children, but for ourselves. Because if we have continued fighting, you were looking at, we already had a decade plus where war had been raging and the educational system was not proper. So you were looking at um, you were looking at a decade, a generation of young people who were not going to school. All they knew was violence and internal displacement, all of these things. So literally, when we did that work, it was to secure the future of these young people. And then fast forward, if you look at what I do now, is basically to do what was undone during the course of the war. So today we run this foundation where we provide leadership and educational opportunity for young people. So I, I say my first life was ending the war for my generation. And this second life is investing in the future of the younger generation, doing something that the, the war giving them back what the war took from them. Yeah, absolutely. It's like the, you know, getting to peace was just the beginning of, 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 of what you had, of all the work that had to be done. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's, let's, let's talk about the foundation. So, or even, even so, even post peace talks, what, what happened, what happened, what happened next? Oh, we went back home. The peace agreement was very bulky, and a lot of people thought, you know, oh, um, now that we have peace, the women should go home and sit down. We decided no. We wanted to simplify that bulky document so that women knew exactly what was written in there, and that we would continue our protest action to kind of like push us to the place that we needed to go. So we came back home, demystified the peace agreement, set benchmarks, because the peace agreement had no benchmarks. So we called women from 80 communities and said to them, hey, between this time period and that time period, you should see this happening in your community. If you don't see it, go and protest. So basically, we just had it on, like we had it on track. And then the protest of the women was to keep the government, all of the parties, feet to the fire. Once we did that, we had to work for civic and voters' education. First, we worked for disarmament, taking guns from the boys, being in the community. We literally did everything that was enshrined in a peace document. And then when elections came, we were out there pulling women from homes, washing clothes for people. Because you used to, we used to go into some communities and say to the women, have you registered to vote? And they'll say, no, we haven't. Why? I don't have anyone to carry my baby. So one of the women would take that baby, put it on their back, and escort the women to go. Someone would tell you, oh, I'm, I've been selling, and I'm stuck in my shop. 
will put two women there, check all of their money, and then one person will take them to the register. They come back, we'll recheck. This is what we sold. And then I'm in the office of a group of 10 calling the National Elections Commission to say at polling station XYZ, they just ran other film for taking people's picture. They just ran other ink for marking people's hand. They've ran other ID. So back and forth, back and forth to the extent that when elections ended, we were certificated by the National Elections Commission as one of the civil society organizations that really work towards a successful elections. So once the president was elected, we realized that it was now time for us to end the mass action campaign and go back into doing what we knew how to do best. Yes, I was thinking. So you have you have a few ki- few children, like I have eight. eight. So is this while this is all going on? Do you have like a two year old running into the bed and waking you up? And you're like, I got a I got a big protest tomorrow, darling. The beautiful thing about it was that I had a sister who died in two thousand six. So the work ended in two thousand five, and she died in two thousand six. I had a sister who took very good care of the kids because they were all refugees in Ghana. So there were many moments in the lives of my children that I did not encounter or experience. For example, my third child, who is going to be 24 this year, loved soccer. He played soccer all through. I never watched him play soccer until 2000 and I would say 15. Yeah. So all his life he had played soccer, but all his life I had not been around. So, so there are moments in their lives that I cannot say I was there for. I used to zoom in, and then when I come, I was always very tired then. There were always friends who used to come around, and then I used to like to party when I was not protesting. So I was never really, really there. So now, even in the midst of my busyness, I try to make myself available as much as I can for the adult children. So I do a lot of guilt parenting now. (laughs) Of course. Yes. Yeah. To the point, they're like, Mom, can you please just give me a minute? Oh, it's (laughs) even more than that. They would say... Like this year, we had plans to go to a particular place of vacation. They were like, no. They wanted to go to another place. And as long as I succumb to their pressure, my husband will obviously follow suit. So that's the way it is. But most times it's because, oh, I'm never really around. Or we are never really around. So let's just allow them to have those moments that they can remember and appreciate us for. Absolutely. Absolutely. And in terms of the journey, you know, and, and, and I imagine you were too busy to recognize some of these wins as being, you know, uh, as monumental as they were until, you know, you had a chance to just sit down for a minute. Um, was how did the, you know, the Nobel Peace Laureate come and, and can you just, you know, explain, you know, the, I guess... What I, what I would have thought you just going, you know, it would have been one of those moments when you just had to reflect on, on all, everything you had done. Well, I, I would say that in terms of stock taking from the past till today, I, I still have yet to do that. Um, 
I don't think I ever aspire to be a Nobel laureate. All I ever wanted to do was to guarantee that my children live in that nation without the sound of a gun. It was never about an accolade till today. Sometimes I get invited to places, even as a Nobel laureate, and I ask myself, why me? You know, I, it, I, people work and they say, I deserve this. I work and say, because of humanity. And that's the way it is. It's never about privilege or everything that comes my way. I see it as a blessing from God. So when the Nobel came, I was shocked. A week before the Nobel, a, a Japanese, a Korean radio, a TV or radio station wrote, Japanese or Korean, one of them wrote to say the Nobel was coming and I was up and I told them, no, they shouldn't bother me. And then it was like, where will you be? After the announcement, I said, I'll be home eating fufu. A Nigerian newspaper called me. I told them the same thing. Unfortunately, or fortunately, I think I'm the only laureate who would tell you that I never received a telephone call because I was on a red-eye flight from San Francisco to New York and then to connect to go back to Ghana to my children. Mm-hmm. So it was not like I positioned myself and there was a media. But if I knew, I'd probably be in Liberia surrounded by the women. No, I did not. So when it came, it was like, but some days as I do this journey, and it's it's been a journey. Um, Sometimes when I sit with the women and they remind me, do you remember you did this? And I'm like, "Mm mm-mm. You know, like a a Japanese station decided to do a thing on me, but they decided to go to Liberia first before coming to New York to interview me. And then they tell me a story that one of the women told me that in 1999, we had gone to this place where I used to work with ex-soldiers, and these soldiers were fighting, and someone had stabbed their friend in the eye. And that I just jumped in that group while everyone else was running, pulled the knife out of this guy's eye, put a cloth there, and push him in a, in a pickup and say, let's go to the doctor, like, without even thinking. So she, after she told the story, when I went back, they to, I said to her, you told those Japanese people, she said, you don't remember? She said, it was after that moment that I knew that you were officially crazy, <laughs> that there was nothing that you couldn't do. But so gradual, some days, like recently, again, I was back in Monrovia and someone was reminding me of a time that we were coming and there was so much stress um, by the immigration officers and that I just sat there and these immigration people just harassed and the women were in a bus and the women just started fighting and causing noise. And then one man came and said, Oh, are you the leader of this group? And I was just looking at him. And then someone said, that's a tiger. Don't awaken that tiger. If you think those women are rowdy, that is the worst person. So, you know, this person was telling this story just recently when I was in Liberia, and I couldn't stop laughing about it. So sometimes, like, the dust settle, recollect. I think I could write a hundred books from all of the things that I've 
encounter or I've done yeah but prizes owner Nobel it was never part of the equation when I was doing what I did for me peace would have peace was enough absolutely I've only got time for one last question sure um so on onto the foundation you know like um it's been the um obviously a passion of yours you know what are some of the successes and how can how can the listeners help how can our well, community help we do leadership um and educational opportunities for young people in liberia and some parts of west africa um this i feel is like my botox the foundation they work with the young people because i think that's what keeps me young and keeps me going because i feel so happy just being able to mentor the next generation of young people to date we have 600 plus that we support directly and indirectly indirect means that we provide um funding for institutions that these young people are part of so for example there is a soccer academy that we're paying for 10 girls to extend to attend school and learn how to play soccer. There's another foundation that we support 50 students who previously was in the street selling, were in the street selling to pay their fees. Now that we're paying their fees, they can no longer be in the streets to sell. The direct beneficiary of our program are young people that we've identified, we pay everything for, provide healthcare in cases we provide food, and shelter and everything that they need. So we call it our 360 degree support to them. Um, if you go to the Bowie Peace Foundation, USA.org, you can make a donation and there's nothing too small. Five, 10, 15, $20 helps. Every year we do backpacks for children who have excelled in school 19 and above in Liberia. We give them new backpack with school supplies and 20 US dollars to buy uniform. So you can invest in that. It's, it costs maybe $26 or $30 to, to, to send one, get a child or new backpack, school supplies, and the $20 to give them a new uniform. So there's so much to do, but I can say that this foundation, the way I submerge myself, or is that the English word? immerse myself in the work of the, the, the women's movement or the way that I carry on even now my peace work globally I think I do 200 times more when I'm with these young people because the world that we live in is upside down wrong is right right is wrong it's going to take a lot of mentorship from leaders like myself and a lot of holding of hands and accompanying young people to let them know that right is right and wrong is wrong. And that's the journey that I find myself on currently. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you so much, Lema. Um, really, really love the chat. And um, yeah, we'll be, we'll be doing our best to try and push this out and uh, support you and um, all the best for the future. To keep up to date with all things Startup Grind, visit us at startupgrind.com or join us at an event in a city near you. Until next time, chase the vision and keep hustling.